is brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating 70 years of getting more books to more people. Welcome to Chapter 1, Page 1 of the April edition of Book Choice here on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books. My name is Paige Nick. And for the next hour, we have eight wonderful book segments, including five great book reviews and four meaty interviews with authors to share with you. So I hope you'll stick around and discover some great new gems for your bookshelf. And since this station isn't called Fine Book Radio, and it is called Fine Music Radio, we don't only have books, we have plenty of fine music too. And to celebrate the month of April Fools, all the music tracks in our show today, selected and compiled by the wonderful Rick Everett and Dave Wood, are about fools. The authors of the first book we'll be hearing about on today's show, however, are no fools at all. During lockdown, South African published authors and friends Amy Heidenrich, Conita Loxton, Gail Schimmel and Pamela Power got together, I would imagine via Zoom, Twitter, email, phone, text and laptop between their homes in Cape Town and Josie to co-author a fabulously fun new novel called Chasing Marion, which is published by Pan Macmillan. The book is about four friends who bond over their fandom for Marion Keys and their mission to see her live at a literary festival. I've read all of these authors independently and they're really, really good at what they do. So I'm fascinated to see what they do together. Beryl Eichenberger joins us this morning to tell us all about it. It's difficult enough writing a book, but when there are four authors contributing... How on earth do you offer a story that doesn't scream of four different styles and lack cohesion? Someone has to be in charge. Well, I don't know the answer to that, but what I can tell you, that Amy Haydenrich, Carnita Loxon, Pamela Power and Gail Schimmel have seriously got it right with Chasing Marion. These four friends, driven by the thought of not seeing each other at the various literary festivals because of COVID, decided to collaborate on a novel. And the result? A super feel-good, humorous and witty treat to bring you back to normality, or whatever we're going to call it now. It's a wonderfully delicious slice of South African life that emphasises the important role of books, friends, making connections and taking a few risks in our lives. And that social media can be a positive game-changer. So who is the Marion? The very lovely Marion Keys, whose shout-out on the front cover, warm, funny and moving, aptly describes what lies between the covers. It's a seamless story, with four wonderfully relatable characters for a delightful Sunday read. And while I'm guessing which author wrote which character, I suspect I'm way off beam. You will know each one of the four protagonists. Up in Josie, there's Jess, yummy mummy on the brink of divorce and seriously not in a good place. Widow Ginger is leading a happy life full of wisdom and fun, if only her daughters wouldn't see her as decrepit. Matt is a gorgeous, about-to-qualify clinical psychologist, still living at home with his parents, and not gay. And down in Cape Town, the lovely Queenie, the assistant librarian with an absent boyfriend, a writing habit, and desperately looking for change. What have they all got in common? A love for Marion Keys. How do they get together? Through social media. Forming the MK Book Club, not to be confused with Encanto with Zizwe, and armed with the knowledge that Marion is coming to South Africa, to a literary festival, they brew up a crazy scheme to meet their favourite author. 
Of course, it's not all plain sailing, but the twists and turns take the reader on a reality check of our own lives and the risks we avoid or not. Sometimes it's time to throw caution to the winds and find something new and exciting, like the casual meeting on Seapoint Promenade, the IT specialist who's not a young nerd using social media to form solid friendships, and that at heart we're all so similar. It doesn't matter where you come from. When you make the right connections, the world is a different place. I simply devoured this. It's like a glass of champagne full of bubbles, tickling you all in the right places, entertaining, funny, and a huge success. What a tonic! Chasing Marion by Amy Haydenrich, Carnita Loxton, Pamela Power, and Gail Schimmel is published by Pan Macmillan. And now we're joined by two wonderful new guest reviewers. Safra Musikanth is a Grade 12 student at Abbots College. And Ella Vidatetsky is in Grade Eleven at Hertzliya Highlands. This month, Safra and Ella picked up Goodnight Golda, a handbook for brave Jewish girls and their mighty friends by Batya Bricker. If you are a fan of the bestseller Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls, this might be the title for you. Goodnight Golda explores thirty-two Jewish women who have shaped our history with illustrations that pop off the page. What did you think of it, Safra and Ella? Hi, I'm Safra Musikanth. When I first saw this book, I was in a state of happy disbelief. I'd never before seen this kind of representation of strong Jewish woman. These are the kind of stories that the current-day media fails to show us. It was very refreshing to see these stories of Jewish women of color finally being told. This book does a beautiful job of highlighting the diversity of the Jewish people. Throughout the book, we get introduced to different characters, spanning from biblical times like Queen Esther. To icons of the 21st century, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, these stories of resilience and bravery in the face of unimaginable suffering are truly moving. Reading this book as a young Jewish woman made me feel empowered and seen. Although this book focuses on the lives of Jewish women, the themes of overcoming prejudice and fighting to be taken seriously as a woman in a male-dominated society are universal. One of the women in this book who deeply resonated with me, as her story hits so close to home, is Helen Susman, a fierce human rights activist. She was the only person in the whites-only South African Parliament to oppose the apartheid regime. Nelson Mandela once said, referring to Helen, "It was an odd, wonderful sight to see this courageous woman peering into our cells and strolling around our courtyard. She was the first and only woman to ever grace our cells." For her incredible work, she was awarded an honorary doctorate, and was by Nelson Mandela's side when he signed the Constitution. Ella, what did you think? Thanks, Safra. Goodnight Golda is a book that really surprised me, not only because this kind of Jewish representation of girls is unfortunately a rare sight to behold, but because of the impact it had on me. You see, this book is filled with thirty-two inspiring stories. When I saw Golda Meir and Anne Frank, I thought I probably knew what those stories would hold. But the way this book has taken these stories, these ladies of pluck, as they call them in the book, and knitted them together, weaving in inspirational themes and messages specific to this demographic, leaves one in awe of the strength and braveness of these girls, and really does inspire. A favorite theme of mine discussed in this book is how, when people talk about Judaism, the word feminism doesn't often come straight to mind. But this book shows how all of these women are strong feminists, not in spite of their Judaism, but because of it. It shows how, even in male-dominated sectors of society, 
it is possible to make your mark as a woman. The title Goodnight Golda refers to Golda Meir, the first, and so far only, female Israeli Prime Minister, and the only woman present when the Declaration of Independence in the State of Israel was signed. Golda was a self-made woman, who fought hard for her education and goals, and wasn't afraid to put aside society's expectations of her, and put in the work to become the person she wanted to be. Her story is a true inspiration and captures the essence of the book. It shows Jewish girls that no matter their background or social standing, they can accomplish all they strive for if they fight hard enough. In the words of Golda Meir, trust yourself, create the kind of self that you will be happy to live with all your life. Sounds to me like this book makes for a great gift. It's available at exclusive books nationwide. Safra and Ella, I know you're both loaded up this year with big studies. So thank you for not only taking the time to read inspiring books like this one, but also for coming over to tell us about them. A day in the light of a fool A sad and a long lonely day I walk the avenue and hope I'll run into Welcome sight of you Coming my way I stopped Just across from your door But you're never home Anymore. So back to my room And there in the gloom I cry Tears of To my room And there in the gloom I cry Tears of goodbye
That was A Day in the Life of a Fool by Frank Sinatra, who was really no fool. Speaking of no fool, Beverly Rose Miller has been taking her reading seriously this month. She picked up a large tome on the life of Lenin, the dictator, by Victor Sebastian. He's a notable historian of Russian history. In the light of the war on Ukraine, she's joining us to unpack this work and share some historical perspective, right here on Fine Music Radio's Book Choice, sponsored by Exclusive Books. As the world's eyes are focused on the tragedy of Ukraine, and also Russia, it seems useful to think about one of the most significant and controversial political figures of the 20th century, Vladimir Lenin. How did a bright young boy from a loving, comfortable, upper-middle-class home become the legendary firebrand revolutionary who changed history? This large book, Lenin the Dictator, by Victor Sebastian, takes a deep dive into his life and the tumultuous events of his times. The Bolshevik Revolution, Lenin's version of the dictatorship of the proletariat, a phrase just filled with ambiguity, did not happen in a vacuum. Although later revisionists of history tried to portray him as leading a glorious bloody revolution, he did not win it as much as the autocratic Tsar lost it, a stupid and vain man who was so disliked that his own Cossacks abandoned him during the storming of the Winter Palace. This famous event in 1917 was much less stormy than your average taxi war on a bad day, despite later embellished versions. While Lenin was arguing with his rival Kerensky about who was going to run Russia's future, guess who won by simply declaring himself dictator? Journalists strolled into the palace and were shown around by servants still wearing Tsarist uniforms, while streets were filled with shoppers and diners as the gormandizing Joseph Stalin worked his way through the Tsar's legendary wine cellar. More extras were needed in Einstein's epic 1927 and largely fictional movie than took part in the original event. Russia's grandfather, as Lenin is called, was born Vladimir Ulyanov. No one really knows the origin of his name Lenin, though he used many pseudonyms in his life, on the run and in exile. Although Russians were later assured of his peasant background, he was in fact born in 1870 to a doctor who had minor noble status and a loving mother who financially supported him off their estates for much of his life. His older brother was hanged as part of an assassination plot on the hated Tsar. This profoundly affected the teenaged Lenin. He was a short, large-headed, very clever child, top of his class, a loner, and later a lawyer with a short and unsuccessful practice. He did not like the profession. All his successful, close relationships were with women. He called his mother a saint, and trusted his wife Nadja and his longtime mistress Inessa as he did no others. The three lived in what was a surprisingly devoted menage a trois. He loved the outdoors, often taking to the mountains in exile to heal his frequent bouts of nervous illness and exhaustion. He had no children. He was usually kind and well-behaved to those near him, though he almost always then fell out with his former comrades. He could not bear dissent. He was not a sadist and did not relish in gruesome details, as did Hitler. Nor was he acquisitive, living in very austere circumstances. 
even when he could have lived like a king, like later and current Soviet leaders. Nor was he attached to ideology. A firm Marxist, he was nevertheless quite happy to tear up Marx's ideas and rewrite them if he thought circumstances demanded. In fact, the brand of communism taught in Soviet schools is Leninism. He perfected the idea that political terror against opponents was justified for the greater good. He was not cold, but on the contrary passionate and given to furious rages. Ukraine, a rich agricultural country, endured dreadful suffering during his short spell in power when millions died of hunger in 1921, there and elsewhere in Russia, after collectivizing the farms had led to devastating famine. A former colleague and senior Bolshevik, who was later punished, Angelika Balabanova, reflected that his tragedy was that he desired good but created evil. As so often happens during social change, his society closely mirrored the one before that he was born into, the violent, tyrannical and corrupt Romanov Russia. He explained to the writer Gorky, who he liked, that revolutionary dictatorship meant unrestrained power and the use of force, not of law. He died in 1924. An historical curiosity is that Putin's grandfather, Spiridion, was Lenin's cook after the revolution. Putin spent vast sums renovating Lenin's mausoleum in Red Square in 2011, during a time of deep austerity, emphasizing his historical continuity with Lenin as a dominant, ruthless, nationalistic leader who had seized power and became a political legend. You can make of that what you will. Lenin the Dictator by Victor Sebastian is a fascinating, original and complex character study which made very thoughtful reading indeed. After that deep dive into history, we're pulled right back into the present by Vanessa Levenstein with the first of a few author interviews on the show today. A Terrible Kindness, a book by Joe Browning Rowe, was only just published in January of this year and yet it's already an international Sunday Times bestseller. This book has been billed by The Guardian as a thoughtful debut novel that offsets tragedy with uplift. Vanessa joins us with the author, Joe Browning. Welcome both to the show. How does one begin to recover from trauma is a question that perhaps all of us are asking right now as we watch the horrific images unfold on the news. A Terrible Kindness by Joe Browning Rowe starts with a terrible event. In 1966 in Aberfan, a mountain of coal waste collapsed on the village's school killing the children and adults inside. Now, the novel begins with a young William Lavery who arrives at the scene to help embalm the dead. We're very lucky because joining us today on Book Choice from Cambridge is the author, Joe. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. What made you choose Aberfan, that disaster, to set the scene of the book? Yeah, it's a really important question, actually, that I'm really glad to answer because I didn't set out to write a book about Aberfan. I set out to write a book about the embalmers who went there. So I would have felt it was a step too far to imagine being somebody in Aberfan experiencing that. But the idea of looking at somebody who is an outsider, whose job called upon them the most extraordinary kindness and um, to stand alongside people on the extremities of human distress. But then, you know, they came in as outsiders. 
and they left again and they had their lives to lead. So that's what I was interested in about the impact of people who come in and out of those situations. But also, of course, with every sentence I was trying to do it with respect for the people of Aberfan. Well, this respect came through. There was nothing gratuitous about the tragedy. Talking of kindness, the title's so interesting as it speaks to events before and after the trauma. At the scene of the disaster, somebody says, keep your head down and your heart hard. That's your kindness. Now, without giving too much away, how does the theme of kindness evolve in your book? Well, I think, you know, from the very beginning, my impulse was to tell the embalmer's story. And it was having read a report that the chief embalmer had written after they got back. And as I say, I was just struck by my goodness, some people's jobs just call so much from them, as it were. But the kindness is the kindness that nobody wants. Nobody wants to need an embalmer. (laughs) That's why it's a terrible kindness. Absolutely nobody wants that. And I think that puts those people in a very particular position. But then also my main character, as you say, without any spoilers, he really, really needs to learn to be kind to himself because he just jeopardizes his happiness because of loss in his own life that then gets kind of blown apart a bit by the experience at Aberfan. He just can't embrace life in all its fullness. And so for me, as his author, as it were, I wanted to get to the point where he could be kind to himself and let himself live life to the full. Such a beautiful lesson that we all have to learn in different ways. I mean, we don't have to have gone through trauma to be self-destructive. And music is both a comfort and a trigger. What's the role of music in your life? Did you write this book to music? Well, I played the Miserere, which features very highly a lot during this time, which was a joy. I go and hear it sung live in Cambridge because I'm lucky to live here so I can go and hear it twice a year. Music, it's funny, it's not the constant in my life that some people might expect from the book. I have phases where I get sort of enveloped by particular music, particular artists. But I think I always feel I regret that it doesn't play a bigger part in my life. And I think there was an impulse in me writing this book to sort of explore that and dive deeper into it. You grew up in a crematorium, is that correct? I did, I did. My father was the superintendent of this crematorium. And so it was beautifully new. It was a landscaped place. We were the first people to, well, my dad was the first superintendent. You know, it was an isolated childhood. We didn't have neighbours. I couldn't play with friends very easily. But we had huge grounds to play in once the gates were shut in the evening. Enormous, you know, hills, water, you know, little fountains, lakes, (laughs) and a big crematory in which we learned to roller skate. (laughs) Well, clearly your father displayed a kindness because there is a link between you growing up and having chosen the subject material for the book, surely. Definitely. I think that moment when I read this story of the embalmers, I think for some people, there would have been so many psychological leaps to get over, to get really involved with this. Whereas for me, going back to talk to embalmers, to watch an embalmer, all those sorts of things, there was a sense in which I felt I was going home rather than going into weird, ghoulish territory. It felt very comfortable. Yes, that's where the book succeeds, where somebody else couldn't. There was nothing ghoulish about it. There was something honourable about respecting the dead. Yes, absolutely. Because I hadn't seen an embalming before I was researching for this novel, but the way the embalmer spoke to the... It was an old lady's body, and he spoke to her using her first name throughout the process. And the tenderness and respect really moved me, so much so that by the end of the process, I found myself talking to her as well. So, yeah, that stayed with me very much. Very beautiful. Your book's done brilliantly. It's a bestseller. It's received critical acclaim. Did you ever imagine this? 
No, I realized that my wildest dreams were to be published, you know, genuinely, because the point at which all this started to happen, and particularly the moment when I got um, translation deals, and I was finding out that there was the brilliant literary translators in other countries working on my story, that absolutely blew my mind. I just, yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> it's very authentic, and it's very original, and it's very moving. So it's actually not surprising in retrospect so much for your time and all the best for your book. I've been speaking to Joe Browning Rowe, the author of A Terrible Kindness. I used to play around with hearts, hasten at my call. When I met that little girl, I knew that I would fall for a little fool. Oh yeah, I was a fool. me, but her heart was full of lies, poor little fool. Oh yeah, I was a fool. Thank you, Ricky Nelson, for Poor Little Fool, right here on Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books, with me, your book host, Paige Nick. This next interview is one I've been looking forward to. Patricia Sconstein is a very well-known South African-Italian novelist, poet, memorist, author of children's books, and curator of anthologies. And she's now just published a much-anticipated memoir called Thrown Among the Bones. Beryl Eichenberger joins us to chat to this talented and prolific author about her career, her writing, and her new memoir, which is about all of the above. What a privilege to welcome Patricia Shonstein, author, poet, and publisher, who, with her memoir, Thrown Among the Bones, takes us into the backstory of her life. This memoir not only gives us that intimate glimpse, but illustrates how her life experiences have given voice within her novels, which are all in the genre of magical realism. 
Extracts from her seven novels are included as endnotes, taking the reader into Patricia's skill with words and atmosphere. This is an unusual and absorbing memoir, intricately stitched together to bring her multicoloured life quilt together. Thoughtful and articulate, Patricia is the mistress of magic. A beautiful poem opens the book. It sets the scene, and I'm going to ask Patricia to read it to us, if you don't mind, Patricia, and welcome. Hello, Beryl, and all the listeners. The poem is called, I Go Back to 1949. I go back to 1949. I see them board the ship, clutching two suitcases and my baby brother. I see my mother with her copies of Petrarch and Giacomo Leopardi, with her knitting patterns and great winter coat. I see my father with his documents and two photographs, all that were snatched from Holocaust flames. I watch them sail down the East Coast and reach Byra, where it is all heat and where the dock workers' songs are sad. I should say, go back to the frescoes and stucco. Go back to the floating golden city and the Bridge of Sighs. But I must be born on Savannah. I must be born among Musasa and Mohobohobo. I must know the resurrection of dry grass after rain. Even though they will each die lonely death among strangers, having nothing, having lost Petrach and Leopardi, I will let them board the train and go ahead into the interior, for I must be born to the sound of Mbira and know the weeping of diaspora. Oh, I get goosebumps with that. It's absolutely beautiful. And of course, it tells the story of your parents emigrating from yes. war-torn Europe or after the war Europe to Africa. Yes. Post-war Europe, my father was a Czechoslovakian mm -hmm. who escaped the Holocaust and my mom was uh, um, an Italian who endured the German occupation of Italy and Italian fascism. So they came to Africa with nothing except their culture, their rich heritage of literature and with dreams and hope. Many of those, for absolute sure. And I think that you've realized so many of those dreams in, in your novels as well. But let's talk about, I mean, they were a mixture of faiths. So that was um, not unusual for the time, but it did cause some consternation, I think, a little to you as a child when you were growing up? Yes, so my mom was a Catholic and she converted to marry my father. He was an Orthodox Jew. But the influence of both re religions was very strong. At a certain part of my education, I was actually in a convent. And in those days, the Catholic Church was still rich with Latin. And mm. I was I just became soaked with all the magic of Catholicism, the statues and the ritual and the Latin and the incantations. But it was balanced with Judaism, which didn't have that sort of magic. But the two religions, for quite a while, I lived totally harmonized with them. They, they didn't conflict for me. They really only started conflicting when I'd been in the convent for about two years, when mm -hmm. one of the sisters pointed out the extreme differences, particularly concerning original sin and and the fact that Jewish people, certainly my dad, she was very firm on that my father as a Jew would go one way and that would be down into the bowels of hell and the flames. 
So that it was then it was then that that the divisions became mm-hmm. glare, glaringly obvious. But uh, as an author, both religions have fed my data bank, so to speak, and and certainly the Catholicism has contributed to my ability to write magical realism. And you write absolutely beautifully. I think I've read probably all of your novels now and and loved all of them. Patricia, what prompted writing this memoir? And, and of course, the very unusual name. So my readers will know that I am preoccupied with the recurrence of war and the phenomena of genocide. And um, this memoir actually is a holistic look back at, at my published novels and my search for light. The thread running through this memoir is, my, is the thread of my search for ethical light. Um, and the conclusion of the memoir, which takes place in the COVID year when we were all locked up, shows, and I won't give the end away, shows my success or my non-success in finding that ethical mm-hmm. light. Patricia, I hate to say this, but we've run out of time. Can't my word. <laughs> I know, and there is so much to say. But it's Thrown so Among the Bones by Patricia Shonstein, a memoir that will remain with you very much so. Thank you, Patricia, and we will speak again. Thank you, Beryl, and thank you to the listeners. I've long been a fan of Patricia's work, so I look forward to getting my hands on this memoir. Now, how about some good music to round off a good read? with A Fool Such As I by the one and only Elvis Presley. It's a good music choice here on Book Choice.
Thank you. Thank you very much, Elvis. We come now to one of my favorite segments in the show where John Hanks, I've heard no relation to Tom Hanks, joins us to chat nature books with authors Chris and Matilda Stewart, who continue to publish more titles in their superb collection of field guides. I've just received a copy of what I have no hesitation in saying is an absolutely superb field guide to the National Parks and Game Reserves of Namibia, Botswana, Zimbabwe, Zambia and Malawi. And it gives me great pleasure to welcome back to Book Choice the two authors, Chris and Matilda Stewart. You know, your productivity is amazing. Some 29 books published, including some of the best-selling field guides. You must have really enjoyed doing your latest production because it's packed full of informative text, quality maps and excellent photographs of 42 protected areas. It's not always easy to make a choice, but I'm going to ask each of you to name your top three areas and tell me why. Chris, do you want to start? Okay, right. Well, it's a very difficult question because nearly all parks have something good about them. I will start off by saying the Namib Desert in its entirety, basically from the Orange River up to the Kuneni. You can get away from the crowds, which is very important for us. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful area. Another one, we don't know the park very well. We have been there in 2019. That's in Kota in Malawi. It's a very, very wild area, rugged area. It's never been properly explored for its biodiversity. So that would be you know, the second one. And then Laiwa Plain in the west of Zambia. Now, we're well aware that it's got numerous issues but it is a very 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 special place and it has the second largest blue wildebeest migration on the african continent but that's not the main attraction for us it's mainly we go seeking the small creatures which i think more and more people are starting to do thank you for that and matilda what's your choice uh all right i will start off as a number one i would say mana pools in zimbabwe it's a i've heard a lot about it, but only on our recent trip for the book did I actually make it to Manapools. So, although it was very dry when we were there, but this is a very, very special park. Number two was probably in Malawi, in the Majete Wildlife Reserve, the Shire, or now Shire River Valley. This is also a very magic place. The power of the river, especially if you think that you compare it to what we call the great fish here in South Africa. This is a real great river. And then, yes, I'm, I'm also, Namib is certainly one of my top three favorite places. And we can go there as often as we want. And every time it is special and it's never boring. And yeah, that's the Namib. Well, um, I think they're great choices. And, of course, listeners can read about them in a lot of detail in your book. I'm sure also listeners will be intrigued by your different academic backgrounds. Matilda, you were educated in Austria and Iran, and you qualified as a medical doctor from the University of Innsbruck. Chris, you grew up in England and South Africa and graduated with a Master's in Wildlife Ecology from the University of KwaZulu-Natal. How do you divide up 
who does what in terms of writing and photo selection for each area? Because there's a huge amount of work to be done. How do you decide this is what each of us is going to do? Well, obviously, if I may start, obviously I am the one that is packing the medical travel kit. (laughs) But otherwise, photographer is something that we both do equally while we travel. In the preparation for the book, I am mainly doing the imaging, the editing of the photographs, editing and creating of maps that go into the book or at least collecting the material and making a rough map if there is a cartographer involved. And yeah, maps even on while we travel, maps is my domain actually. Well, I think the maps are also superb, but you have put together an awful lot of quality information. Husband and wife working together. Do you ever have disagreements? Not really. No, actually, no. We have discussions. I think that's the polite way of putting it. We have discussions. (laughs) Um, I won't go any further than that. You know, you never stop working, writing and traveling. What's your next book or field guide going to be? Well, actually, we have several books planned, but at the moment we're concentrating on producing apps, applications, primarily concentrating on regions, such as the Great Karoo. This one should be out within the next month or two. And then we're also covering some of the national parks, but mainly to the north, generally through Africa, some of the lesser-known parks. Well, that's also much appreciated. I think that's certainly needed. Once again, congratulations. It's a superb production. The title again, Stuart's Field Guide to National Parks and Game Reserves, Namibia, Botswana, Zimbabwe, Zambia, Malawi. It's published by Straight Nature in Cape Town, and you can get a copy for 350 rand. Thanks, John. And now, from something new and green to something old and orange, Melvin Minar went on a journey of nostalgic reading. Maybe it was the batch of eight weekly New Yorker magazines that landed up in my mailbox. Or maybe it was the theatre. Since our South African post office has gone in decline, the New York reading jewels arrive months after publication. A bundle of joy, if a little late on hot news. But that arrival, as it does, puts a spanner in the works of regular book reading, especially for someone inclined to keep up with new ones on the shelf. The New Yorker is serious about books. The news about new ones is always a tickle, and the reviews inspiring. The latter is usually that wonderful cross between the super-informed academic approach and the delightfully informing backstory. It often reminds that authors and their books have a history. In fact, what we lovingly call the novel is indeed a human heritage. But maybe it was the world-class production of J.M. Coetzee's novel, Life and Times of Michael Kay, as a theatrical experience at the Baxter Theatre, it just completed a highly acclaimed run, that triggered my thinking about the books of yesteryear. Kutzi's novel won him the Booker Prize way back in 1983, and he had gone on to be honoured with the Nobel Prize after more finely crafted books. The Baxter presentation prompted a reread of the earlier novel. And so the question proposed itself, when and how do we revisit those books we devoured, the ones that made us sit up, change the way we read, think, laugh or cry? those in which the brilliant polish of prose rubbed off to brighten life and thought in a different way? What about those heroes whose writ we vow to treasure forever as foundation of literary art? Before Kutzi's well-deserved world fame, 
he had published over decades many fine books before Damien Galgut's international spotlight, equally well earned for his Booker Prize with a promise, he had charmed and intrigued with books like The Beautiful Screaming of Pinks, The Quarry and The Good Doctor, all books we reread now or ought to. It was during this cheerful disruption of keeping up with the contemporary that I noticed news about a book titled The Penguin Modern Classics Book. This is a beauty that appeared in November to celebrate the 60th anniversary of the top-notch series that appeared under the Penguin imprint as Modern Classics. The new title covers every modern classic published so far. That is more than 1,800 books featuring over 600 authors. Quite a guide to 20th century world literature, I'd say. That new book took me back to the top shelf in my study, where a long, extensive row of books, all same size, line up side by side. These are my treasures, most dating back to the turn of the 60s. They are the original Penguin modern classics, where their grey spines and the older Penguin classics in their stately black. Soon, despite the bunch of teasing New Yorkers, I reached up for the long-delayed visit to Chaucer, Nietzsche, Kafka, Faulkner, Jeet, and one very special one. Also in the Penguin Modern Classics, there is a tour dubious salvation by South African author Etienne Leroux. This is the English translation of three Afrikaans novels that took the local literary world by storm in the 1960s. And so one of the reread joys presented itself, dusty and all. Dusty is right, Melvin. You've sent me traipsing around the house to run an eye over my own collection of Penguin Classics. Many simply bought because they are Penguin Classics, and not really because the title or the author are someone I had ever considered reading before. Who can resist that classic orange and white striped cover with the famous Penguin logo? Mwandi, how about some music next? Listeners, every month Mwandi does the mammoth task of pulling this show together for us in the Fine Music Radio studios. Mwandi, how about I'm a Fool to Care by Frank Effield? I'm a fool to care When you treat me this way I know I love you But what can I do? I'm a fool to care I'm a fool to cry When you tell me goodbye You left me so blue When you were untrue I'm a fool to I know I should laugh And call it a day But I know I would cry, dear If you went away I'm a fool to care When you don't care for me So why should I pretend I lose in the end, I'm a fool to care Oh, I know I should laugh And call it a day Oh, but I know I would cry Dear, if you went away I'm a fool to care When you don't care for me so why should I pretend I lose in the end? I'm a fool to care 
Why should I pretend I lose in the end? I'm a fool to care. And as that great track helps us wind down towards the last segment of Book Choice for the month, sponsored by Exclusive Books, we welcome Philip Todras, who's interviewing Armin Grobler about a very cool-looking new coffee table book called Photo Safari Kruger. Photo Safari by Armand Grobler is a very handsome book with lots of information plus very spectacular photos. Armand, you call it a photographic safari, an experience through inspirational creation, and I must tell you, I found just that. But tell us a little bit about the background and what got you involved in wildlife photography particularly. I've always had a, uh, a passion in, uh, with wildlife and, um, and photography. Uh, being born in South Africa, I was only about six or nine months old when I came to the Kruger for the first time. So that uh, passion for wildlife has, has been there right from the start. And uh, we actually moved over to Australia when I was nine. And coming back for holiday at the age of about 19 years old, we went to the Kruger and then uh, I had my first ever glimpse of a uh, of a wild leopard and I remember saying to my mum I wish that I actually had a camera to have been able to capture that because you know that's what life is about it's about capturing these moments and from that day on I actually got into photography and um, starting to capture these moments so it was all sparked by a particular moment that stood out to me and then that eventually caused me to move back to South Africa and uh, become a photographic guide and and eventually to accomplish a dream of mine, which was to be able to create this uh, book. You talk about creative, and I think it's a very important word, because it's not just about the photograph. You you mention creative photographic skills and techniques. I'd like you just to talk a little bit about that, because I gather you're not working on the photograph so much after using those techniques afterwards, but capturing it at the moment. Can you talk a bit about that? Yes, so the creativity that comes in, um, I believe that, you know, in modern days, anyone can take a nice photo, a very good camera at a reasonable price, and you can go and and actually capture nice images. But in order to be able to create something artistic and creative that touches and inspires people, you really need to step outside those borders of normality. And that's where Photo Safari Kruger comes in, is that it's really pushed the boundaries of photography using different styles and and capturing moments that uh, people would often look past. There's some uh, slower shutter images that capture movement. There's different angles, artistic uh, views on it as well. So if you want to be able to stand out and actually captivate people and and make them turn the next page, you have to be able to accomplish and create something that actually really stands out. And that's, in the modern days, uh, what's actually making a difference between um, professionals and more your amateur photographers. So it's important to be able to create those stories. And then in the book itself, the words, the descriptive words, um, also further paint in the picture of, you know, what you'd experience on something like a photo safari, um, just to be able to, people that not only see the images, but also actually feel like they're part of the experience as well and learn from it. You certainly do take us into these images. And as you mentioned, it's not about fixing it afterwards. It's having the skills to decide how you're going to grab that moment in a particular way. Now tell us a little bit about, you call it complex visual storytelling. I think that's a very important line which does give us some idea of how you do capture these moments. But tell us about some of your experiences perhaps in grabbing that moment. So one of the experiences that I've got in the in the book was of a crocodile that actually comes out of the water. So 
you know, that's not particularly an easy image to take. So what that inquires is you actually have to have a lot of patience and uh, a lot of luck as well. So, you know, getting close, up close and personal, often with this image, I had to lie on my stomach next to a um, a pool of water and uh, there was an active crocodile that was hunting there. And so at that right moment, when that crocodile jumps out of the water to try and catch a fish, then you have to sort of take that image. And so often it's, you have to get down and practical. It's not always just in the vehicle sort of stuff. And then it actually created something spectacular image that you don't often see with that crocodile exploding through the water. So, and then to create an artistic feel to it, making that image black and white in the book, you know, uh, I personally enjoy these black and white images because it takes away the advantage of color. It sort of neutralizes everything and emphasizes what's actually going on in the image. So, uh, yeah, that's just one of the examples that I've got that's in the book. Well, I think there are many examples in the book where you have just captured that moment. I think that's what it is all about. And taking us (laughs) to the greater Kruger region and explaining the complexities of all these issues. I'm also very pleased to see that you're on the cover of The Big Issue. So if people also pick up a copy of The Big Issue, they'll learn all about you and about the book, which you really have to experience. That is Photo Safari Kruger. And the photos are by Armand Robler. We'll be playing out now with What Kind of Fool Am I? by Sammy Davis Jr. And I'll tell you what kind of fool I am. I'm the kind of fool who loves books and the kind of fool who wants to thank the whole team for being part of this show. Mwandi, Dave and Rick, and of course our sponsors exclusive books, as well as our guest reviewers Safra and Ella. And to our authors and regular reviewers, thank you for keeping us in the loop with all these fantastic must-reads. And of course, as always, if you missed any of the reviews or titles in the show, a podcast of the show will be loaded onto the FMR website shortly. That's fmr.co.za. I'm looking forward to being back again on the first Monday in May. Until then, happy reading. What kind of fool am I? Who never fell in love It seems that I'm the only one That I have been thinking of What kind of man is this An empty shell A lonely cell in which An empty heart must dwell What kind of lips are these That went and lied with every kiss That whispered empty words of love That left me alone like this Why can I fall in love Like any other man And maybe
do I know of life? Why can't I cast away this mask of clay? Then go on and live my life. Why can't I fall in love like any other man? And maybe then I'll know what kind of Book Choice was brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating 70 years of getting more books to more people. If